The 2016 election brought something new to the political stage. Cybersecurity. Candidate Hillary Clinton's campaign was hacked, as was John Podesta, her campaign manager, and the world got to see every one of their emails. We now know, because of an indictment by Robert Mueller, how the U.S. government thinks that happened. And we know that they think it was a deliberate attempt by Russia to swing the election in Donald Trump's favor. For Yahoo News, I'm Grant Burningham, and this is Bots and Ballots. Years ago, Julian Assange, who founded WikiLeaks, which was the organization which leaked the emails and is believed to show up in Mueller's indictment as Organization One, predicted the chaos that these types of leaks would have. He imagined organizations paralyzed by leaks, inducing fear and paranoia in their leadership. He called these added demands a secrecy tax. He imagined this tax being paid more dearly by authoritarian states, but so far, it's only been deployed as a partisan tool. And in case you thought it was a one-off, it happened again just months later in the French election. Today, I'm talking to Oren Falkowitz. He has held senior positions at U.S. Cyber Command and at the National Security Agency, where he breached systems. Today, as a CEO of a cybersecurity company, he's on the other side, protecting servers from attack. Hacking is cheap and effective, and there's no reason to believe that it's going to go away for 2018 or for 2020. Oren Falkowitz, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. I know you are currently the CEO of a cybersecurity company, Area One Security. You formerly worked for the NSA. What was your title there, and what are you allowed to tell us that you did while working there? <laughs> sure. Uh, well, I worked at the National Security Agency for about seven years. I primarily focused on what in those days we called computer network operations. So uh, these were our, um, our strategies to gather foreign intelligence through computer networks. And then to the end of my career, I focused on uh, making sense of that information with uh, large-scale data analytics. So some of that sounds like hacking. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that's certainly a, a way to, to describe it. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, you know, our job was to use computers to to gather foreign intelligence. I guess we should also mention here that you used to be my boss in the interest of full disclosure. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, so I've been looking over this Mueller indictment of the hack of the DNC and of Hillary Clinton. I was wondering if you could walk me through some of the specifics about how the hackers operated. Well, sure. Well, there's there's three really interesting aspects to the uh, 2016 election hacking. Uh, the first is that it's a it's a continuation of what's been going on for for many years. You know, we've seen that the types of damages or effects that cyber actors are trying to uh, employ have gone from you know defacing websites to stealing data to manipulating data to causing physical destruction and now to having societal rifts. Um, I think we're used to describing data breaches by the millions or tens of millions of credit card numbers or hundreds of gigabytes of data stolen. And often we rank attacks based on on that type of severity. But as the the impacts change in their complexity, it, it challenges us to think of like what might be next. And it's hard to start to grapple with what is the severity of these things. The second is like all cyber attacks, over 95% of them start with what's known as phishing. So, you know, on some level, um, 
this attack looks very generic and it's it's very similar to almost every other attack all 95% of them that go on uh, every day the third is that there's there's often if you go back to kind of early reports of this campaign there's a lot of talk about the highly targeted nature but i think one of the most striking things in the indictment is really how much of a campaign it is and how many hundreds of people and how much of an assembly line operation it is uh, and that speaks to uh, the nature of the hacking and um, what it really takes to be successful. Cyber offensive operations or stealing or hacking, it's a numbers game and it requires large campaigns. And we often communicate about these things as if they're ultra targeted. And that's simply not the case. And that gives us a lot of opportunities to thwart them uh, in the future. And as I mentioned earlier, the goals have really shifted significantly from website defacement to stealing data to manipulating data to some sort of financial gain to now larger and more thematic or outcomes that really challenge society like elections. And so that requires a certain amount of imagination, not specific technical uh, superiority. And I think when these things happen, people are always amazed that someone imagined or thought about the world in that way to, to take advantage of them. The second part of it is we often struggle to address what is it we want to do in terms of dealing with it, reacting, consequences. Now, the first and most important thing is to focus on, you know, preempting things like phishing, to making improvements in computer networks, to securing data, to having strong encryption. Uh, but one of the tools of uh, an all-of-government approach is to take legal action, and I think that's what you're seeing the, the Justice Department do. Because this is the rare case of a hack where we seem to have a step-by-step playbook, I'm hoping you can walk me through these steps from the Mueller indictment. So it looks like they started targeting Clinton campaign officials in March with a spear phishing attack. Why don't you really quickly tell us what a spear phishing attack is? Yeah, well, phishing is an attempt to get a user to click on a link to download a file or to enter confidential information like usernames and passwords or banking login details. The key to successful phishing increasingly is for it to be authentic. So often, as we saw in the the email that John Podesta was phished with in this campaign that looked like a login for Google or a password reset for your Google account. And so at the point when the user enters then the username and password, they're essentially turning it over to the attacker for them to masquerade into the account and to start, one, seeing the information that's gained within that account, using those credentials for other account access, and to then also start manipulating the accounts to send emails on your behalf to trusted colleagues, thus by propagating the kind of authenticity of the campaign. That is a technique that's used by by all cyber actors, over 95% of the campaigns start with these types of phishing. Sometimes it looks like it comes from the CEO and it says, hey, could you call me or could you send me this? And so there's a variety of, of lures or kind of visual or authentic cues, but it's, it's always targeting uh, at a user. The second sort of interesting thing, as you pointed out, is, you know, it's common for people to call these things spear phishing in an attempt to increase the sort of the nomenclature of sophistication. But at the point that you're sending emails to 300 people, there's nothing that's a net, right? Grant, you know, like, and I think that just speaks to really the reality of what people like myself who have been on the other side, you know, gaining access into networks understand, which is it's a numbers game. You only need one person to click. You have a 90% success rate when you send emails or phishing to just 10 people of one of them doing it. And when the stakes are high and it's of a national security type interest, 
you're going to want to spread that out and, and get as much access as possible. And, uh, and that, that has some limitations because at the point you start fishing 300 people, uh, this idea of it being ultra-targeted or undetectable really goes away and it lends itself to us having better outcomes in the future. So that's what happened in this case. They started with this wide group. They got a couple people to click. Some malware got installed on their machine, or it looks like they got the credentials. And from there, they used those email addresses to send out a document titled Hillary Clinton favorable rating dot XLSX. And when people clicked on that, allowed them to further the access that they were getting into the DNC at the time. They install a bunch of malware. Yeah, the, you know the reason to further to further one's access in that way is twofold. The first is for what I would describe as for persistence. So let's say you got access to my computer and I was one of a hundred people at an organization. Well, it's possible I might break it or it gets refreshed or I get a new one. If that's your only access point, then 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 you've lost you know your campaign and and that's not great. You want more. And so the second is obviously different machines have different visibility and have different data on them. And so there's op more opportunity the further, the further you expand your reach. So once they were in the system, um, they used a couple tools. One is called X-Agent, one was a keylogger, and one was called X-Tunnel. Tell me if this metaphor is terrible, but it's sort of like if you broke into a bank vault secretly and you're sitting there with all these gold bars and then you need to get them out without anyone noticing and so a lot of that was document compression and then this tool x tunnel once you have begun you want to limit the visibility of what you're doing so you're going to want to suppress or clean logs you're not going to want to suck out all the data and just have it go flying on a network you might want to do that in time intervals so these are all just further ways as i mentioned at a high level to gain persistence, to gain more data access, and to ensure the long-term viability of, of your goal. Attackers don't do these things randomly. Cyber actors have goals. Um, their job 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, is to make sure they achieve on those objectives. Another thing they did during this attack was they registered a site called actblues.com, which is one letter off from a legitimate website, and then they directed people via email to go to this website and use their logins. Mm -hmm. um, that's another common technique in phishing. It's just another um, flavor of, of phishing where you're getting a user to click on a link. Uh, it's seemingly authentic. Very few of us when we're surfing the web are really studying the URL bar. Certainly it can be hard if you're on a mobile device, you're working quickly. And again, the attempt is only to get one person or several people to just enter those username and passwords and, and move on. So, you know, these are very generic uh, techniques. Again, they don't employ any extreme technical sophistication or leap aheads in computer science, but they do work psychologically from an authenticity standpoint. Uh, and uh, cyber actors have been trading on that currency for basically since the beginning. So there is one number which pops up in this indictment, and that's $95,000. The 95000 they were referring to was what they paid in Bitcoin for servers. I'm just wondering, from scratch, how much does a hack like this cost to do? What I would say is two things. Today, it's never been easier to register a free email address on reputable and global services like Google and Microsoft and uh, Yahoo!, and um, it doesn't cost any money to do that. And it doesn't cost any money to send emails to 100 people and tell them to click on a link and steal their usernames and, and passwords. 
but I don't think the dollars are are the important thing. I, th- I think maybe what you're asking is that seems like a small amount of money to disrupt the democratic fabric of of our country. I think that only speaks to how powerful these techniques are, and that's why it's important to focus on the root of the issue, which are the fishing campaigns, uh, and to take you know more serious, comprehensive actions uh, to get in front of these things. There's a lot of discussion about what might happen from a cybersecurity perspective in the 2018 midterms, in the 2020 presidential elections, just following that. And you know, as of late, what I've been observing is people are talking about voting machines and some of the infrastructure that's run on a state-by-state basis. But candidates are increasingly targets for these types of uh, cyber campaigns, and we're not doing enough early uh, to get in front of it, and we're likely to see more of this uh, going forward. I think we really only saw the tip of the iceberg because it was a presidential campaign. You know, we understand potentially what the consequences were at kind of a heightened level, but we're likely to see a lot more and a lot more ingenuity from folks um, going forward. What do we know about these two groups which are mentioned, Unit 26165 and Unit 74455? You know, it's just, it's clear like many organized cyber groups, they are a professional, that they are executing against a uh, a goal that has a very specific interests and that they will be persistent to that front. They use the same techniques as uh, actors from other countries or actors with, with different goals. And they also work like an assembly line. They split their operations. There's one group designed to stealing the information. There's one group that's uh, set forth to spreading misinformation. Um, what you have here when you're thinking about who you're protecting yourselves from is not the equivalent of a craftsman who sells his needle points on Etsy one by one, but something more akin to a factory, uh, an operation of scale that has a lot of efficiencies and is a large, uh, complex organization. And those efficiencies that are built out through these organizations and the sort of divvying up of responsibilities often is missed as an opportunity to change the outcomes. So there's a couple servers mentioned in this. One is in Arizona and one's in a country outside of the United States, but not in Russia. These look like they were just regular people going about their business and happened to get caught up in this global cyber offensive. Does that mean that everybody's server can be a launch point for a Russian attack? Yes. Is this tactic of hacking a candidate and making all their emails public. Is that a tactic that we're going to see again and again? I know we saw it in France the day before the election. Well, Grant, you know, this is a, this is generic tactic. So it's not specific to political candidates. You're probably familiar with the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers. What we're seeing today is information is one of the strongest currencies in the world today. And parties are stealing information Uh, Information is being leaked from within companies and organizations, and that information is being used to shape views and outcomes. So it's not specific to to candidates. Um, In the last 10 years, we've seen the elections in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in France, um, have cyber campaigns launched against them. 
We've seen the personal information stolen statistically of every American in the United States. We've seen the personal records for every federal employee of the U.S. government stolen and taken to China. We've seen the intellectual property, uh, billions of dollars worth of assets uh, stolen from corporations um, that are inventing amazing uh, breakthroughs here in the United States. Uh, we've seen the takedown of hospital networks. The city of Atlanta was held ransom. So it's clear there is a challenge uh, in front of us. Can I tell a quick story about the first time I met you, Aaron? You can do whatever you want, Grant. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You and I were at a dinner party, and people were debating whether we should be more focused on security or privacy. And you stood up and said, (laughs) why can't we have both? This is America. (laughs) This is America. (laughs) Thanks, Thanks for remembering that. You know, we often separate these issues out too much. Good security requires strong privacy and and vice versa. The most important thing for us uh, as we move forward, and one of the great opportunities in cybersecurity as it relates to elections, is to have conversations about what type of world we want to live in. So I'm hopeful that from the damages from these campaigns, we'll see some positive policy actions and some new people uh, getting involved with government who can uh, reshape uh, the world on the technology front. All right, Oren, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Grant. That's it for Bots and Ballots from Yahoo News. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Oren Falkowitz, my guest, and to Leah Hitchens, my producer. I'm Grant Burningham. Thanks for listening.